is an Odyssey original. This is KNX in Death. I'm Rob Archer. And I'm Charles Feldman. Monterey Park morning following the mass shooting at a dance studio killed 11 people now, hurt nine others. The shooter, of course, was identified as a 72-year-old man who later shot and killed himself inside a van in Torrance. His age is unusual for a mass shooter, so we are going to go in-depth into that. We are also going to look into the bravery of the hero who confronted the shooter at the Second Dance Studio in Alhambra, going with a fight instead of flight, probably saved lives, but did he follow the recommendations from law enforcement? And knee-jerk reactions on social media to mass shootings could point to our country's political and social dysfunction. And more apparently, classified documents have been found at President Biden's home in Delaware. We'll go in-depth on whether the uh, president is in serious trouble on that. Human resources might not be so human anymore when it comes to layoff decisions. We start, though, with the uh, Monterey Park mass shooting. Dr. Park Dietz is a forensic psychiatrist and founder of Park Dietz & Associates, which is a forensics consulting firm. He's testified, by the way, in many of the highest-profile criminal cases in the country, including against Jeffrey Dahmer. Thank you, uh, thank you, Doctor, for being with us. My pleasure. Uh, I think I read this morning that the average age, in this country anyway, of uh, mass shooters is about 32 or 33, I think I read, in their 30s, early 30s, mostly even younger than that. Unusual for somebody of this age, 72. Is there a difference in the profile between somebody who's uh, in their late teens, early 20s, even 30s, and somebody who is in their 60s or 70s engaged in a mass shooting incident? Well, first of all, we don't have many mass shooters of this age to be able to speak from data. But what's certainly clear for all sorts of violent crime is that it tends to occur at higher rates among those who are younger. And that's understandable on many levels. The young have more energy and less mature judgment. So we wouldn't expect it to be otherwise. So we talk about mature judgment. In this case, you're a 72-year-old person. We would assume would have more mature judgment than, say, some of the young mass shooters we have seen in the past. Uh, so what possible motivation could we have? And this is still speculation because we don't have any answers on that yet. Or are we talking about, and this is yet more speculation because we don't have answers yet, is there perhaps some sort of uh, mental issue that might lead a 72-year-old person to carry out a mass shooting? Well, there are a few things that we can be quite sure of based on how universally true they are among mass shooters. And uh, the first of those is that no one ever does this unless they're sad, depressed, unhappy, and willing to die. So that's going to be true regardless of age. The second thing we can be sure of is that he has a grievance. Now, whether that's against specific people or the or groups of people who are having fun or uh, or particular dance halls because of past experiences there, uh, that we don't yet know. But there's going to be a grievance. 
that causes this shooter to direct his anger toward these particular targets. It could be very specific, such as rejection by one or more of these women. It could be workplace violence because he was mistreated at times that he was trying to eke out a living uh, years ago teaching dance. It could be that uh, he's been rejected by women of this age. It could be that um, uh, he's come to feel his life is over and unrewarding, and he wants other people to suffer as he does. All of these we can't yet know, but there will be a grievance and a willingness to die. So let me ask you this, because when we've dealt in the past with mass shooters who were far younger, uh, experts have often told us, well, you know, there may have been signs that their parents or their friends could have seen uh, they were becoming less social. They weren't going out maybe on the weekends. They weren't doing their classwork. Mm-hmm. How do you find uh, – this was a, a man, 72, uh, who, from what I understand, was now living by himself, uh, was not, uh, I don't think, engaged in active work. How does one then in society even potentially detect somebody like that who is a storm waiting to happen – when they don't have the kinds of connections that in younger people one can sort of look to and say, well, did you notice this or did you notice that they were being not responsive or they weren't going to movies anymore, that kind of thing? Yeah, this is a difficult question. And I've spent much of the last 35 years uh, trying to answer it and trying to be helpful. Uh, in, In an organization that has lots of daily observations about a person, such as a school, a college, a workplace, the military, it is possible to systematically gather information, to pay attention to warning signs, and to do the right thing when they're observed. But for people who are isolated and not part of an organization or even a family, this becomes much more difficult for anyone to monitor properly. And even when it's possible to monitor it, We have to be very careful because many of these uh, warning signs, the soft ones that you mentioned, or even harder warning signs like uh, threats or uh, the expression of grievances, occur much more often than violence occurs. So they're not very reliable indicators that something will happen. Instead, what they are is... Uh, sensible indicators that somebody who knows what they're doing ought to assess this particular individual and see whether the risk is sufficiently high to take some action. All right. Uh, Thank you for joining us. Uh, Dr. Park Dietz is a forensic psychiatrist and founder of Park Dietz and Associates. That's a forensic uh, forensics consulting firm. Right now, though, Brandon Say is being called a hero for confronting the shooter at the second dance studio in Alhambra. He was able to wrestle the gun out of the shooter's hands. Now, this was all before Say knew about the mass shooting. Now, police advise against this type of confrontation, but it is sometimes necessary. Michael Julian is a private investigator and security specialist who operates ALIVE. That stands for Active Shooter Survival. It's based in uh, Morietta. Uh, Michael, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. So this is a tough one, isn't it? Because uh, it's hard to argue 
with someone uh, or some ones, if there's more than one, who uh, manages to wrestle the gun out of somebody's hand who was apparently intent on on creating uh, even more mass murder than had already been done uh, and probably save lives. But on the other hand, is that correct that for the most part, the advice given in situations like this is not to engage, isn't it? Well, for clarification, I think for the most part, that advice is if you're talking about somebody with a gun that says, give me your money or your purse or your wallet or your phone, then you say, absolutely. I mean, there's no money or toy or anything you own is worth your life. So give that up. But in a situation of an active shooter, if it comes down to your face-to-face with that person, really the absolute best option is to engage them because they're there to take your life, not your wallet, not your money, not your car. And, you know, they're going to, if you do nothing, um, they're probably going to shoot you anyway. So if you can't, my program alive, as you stated, it stands for assess, leave, impede violence and expose. If you can't leave, which is always our first option to get out of the danger zone, and you can't impede them by creating time and space to stop them from getting to you and harming you, and you're forced to commit violence against them, then that is absolutely the best thing. And that's what we teach in the program all across the country. At that point, you know, you've got two options. You can you can die or you can die fighting or you can actually disarm them, which happened in two of these situations. Does it... It's hard to talk about it in these terms. Does it help in a situation where an active shooter is opening fire inside a very crowded situation where there's a crowd of people around? Does that make it easier for someone to be like, say, for example, come up from behind and uh, knock the guy down and maybe get the weapon out of his hands? Absolutely. Any any time. I mean, the the, the shooter is only going to be able to point in one direction at a time. And if he's surrounded by other people, that means, you know, of the, you know, all of that area that he could be turning, there's going to be people to the left, to the right, and behind him. Now, the problem is, and and what my program preaches intensely is empowerment and taking action. So many people, you can know how to run, hide, fight, but when you're faced with that kind of chaos and stress and fear, your brain oftentimes will lock down from thinking, I'm never going to see my loved ones again. And if that happens and your brain doesn't tell your body uh, to run, hide, fight, knowing that is not going to do any good. Uh, People that have active shooter training understand that there are options and they do have some um, say in how the thing, uh, you know, pans out, what the result is. And they need to know, yes, you can do something. You can leave, you can impede, or you can commit violence. Many people just fall into this victim mentality thinking, I'm never going to see the people I love ever again. And that will that will do terrible things to your brain when you're trying to figure out what to do. You know, to go back to what you were saying before about, you know, a mass shooter who walks in with a gun uh, is not there to to, uh, you know, take your credit cards. So you may as well try to do something. But again, this is a complicated case because the people in the second location, of course, did not know that he was a mass shooter. They didn't know about the incident that had happened a few miles away in Monterey Park. So for all they knew, he might have been there to, to hold somebody up or to ask everybody for their money. They didn't necessarily know that he was perhaps intent on, on killing as many people as possible. So that still goes back to the question, how do you make that calculation if you are 
one of the patrons in a place like that. You don't really know what the intent is. No, you don't. And that's the scary part. Um, you know, you certainly don't want to confront somebody with a gun just because they're holding a gun. You you have to make a determination as to how dramatic of a threat they are to you, if any at all. Personally, if somebody walked in and I turned around and they're holding a gun, I, I'm I'm of course this is what I do for a living. I'm probably not going to wait to find out what he wants to do. I'm immediately going to try and uh, do something about uh, disarming them and and neutralizing that threat. But you know, it, it certainly would be easy to make the wrong call, uh, and that's going to come down to instincts and training and one's confidence in being able to carry out an engagement or you know trying to neutralize that threat. All right. Thank you so much, Michael Julian, private investigator and security specialist. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Charles Feldman. I'm Rob Archer. Coming up a bit later, is President Biden right when he says there's no there there when it comes to apparently classified documents found at his home in Delaware? And those deciding layoffs at big companies might not even be human. And we don't mean like bad people. We mean like not human. We'll explain. Right now, though, social media can be a blessing and a curse whenever there's a shooting like what happened in Monterey Park or any other major breaking news event. It's a blessing because factual information can get out very quickly. But it's a curse because bad information can get out, too. Jessica Gilani is a media studies professor at the University of Pittsburgh, Greensburg, and a researcher at the Pitt Disinformation Lab. Thank you so much for joining us. You know, uh, anytime there is an event like this, like a mass shooting, uh, as we begin begin to get details from news reporters who are on the scene. Uh, we also start getting details from other people who have a political agenda to put in. And, and that's not saying which side political agenda, because that doesn't matter. Uh, but they start uh, putting their political spin on these events, even even while police are still assessing what's going on. Uh, it, this is a symptom of social media, is it not? I agree. Absolutely. It is. Uh, I, I think our attention span and our patience for news has changed so dramatically with the rise of social media. We expect to be able to get breaking news at a breakneck pace. And when we turn to social media for you know information, uh, that's not necessarily verified and vetted. The police tend to make sure that they get the information correct before they brief the press. And we sometimes don't have the patience that we used to have, you know, waiting for the news to land on land on our doorstep with a newspaper is unfortunately a thing of the past. But as you said, it's also a good thing to get information more quickly than before. There's also something that has changed. And I don't know if that's because of social media or if social media has just sort of amplified just societal changes. But we were talking about this this morning in the office that you know, there was a time when you heard about a mass shooting and the first logical question would be, well, how many and, and you know, where and that sort of thing. Whereas now you get questions like, well, who was it? In this case, uh, the mass shooting in Monterey Park, you know, Asian-Americans, for example, wanted to know, well, was it a non-Asian? Was it a hate crime? Uh, we've seen that in a number of other examples where different groups uh, were either relieved or not relieved based on who the shooter turned out to be. Is that something that, that's being uh, sort of amplified or maybe caused 
by the social media uh, environment that we all find ourselves in now? I think because so many nonprofit and advocacy organizations have social media apparatus that are very well followed and examined, uh, there are so many more opportunities to, for lack of a better word, weaponize the news in ways that facilitate one's overall goals as, as, you know, an advocate for some kind of change. And I think that the, you know, the desire to know about the person behind it and whether or not there are more complex motivations, I don't know that that's necessarily a new thing, but I do think that our ability to chatter about it without verified information and to seem as though, you know, these people who might have a platform of influence know something more than we do is a new thing because we didn't necessarily have access to so many different voices that may have, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers um, the way that we do right now. You know, I given the way social media works, I don't think anything can be done about this, but I'm going to operate under the assumption that you're certainly smarter about this than I am. Can anything be done about this? Can the social media companies uh, take more steps to make sure that verifiable information gets out there before the conspiracy theories or the misinformation gets out? I think it's very challenging for the big corporate platforms to do something that would be a heavy-handed moderation uh, and that would be what is required. I mean, a small Facebook community group um, from an area where I grew up and the moderators that I've talked to about how they handle it say that, you know, when there's breaking crime or an accident in their town, they don't want their neighbor to learn about it from Facebook. So they take a very heavy handed moderation approach. But that's a, a much different scale and scope. They're not making any money from their group. So that's different, too. Uh, I think it without really intensifying our expectations and um, the uh, willingness to be moderated, then that unfortunately will be very unlikely to come to pass. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, Jessica Gulani, Media Studies Professor at the University of Pittsburgh, Greensburg, and a researcher at the Pitt Disinformation Lab. This is KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden's lawyer says the FBI searched the president's home in Wilmington, Delaware, and found some more documents with classified markings. Now, the president, he says, no, they're there. Well, does he have a point? Is this really no big deal and something that can easily happen when presidents and vice presidents have their offices packed up? Kevin O'Brien is a white-collar trial lawyer and former federal prosecutor. Also with us is Robert Sanders, retired Navy JAG Corps captain and national security lecturer at the University of New Haven. Gentlemen, thank you both for being with us. Glad to be with you. Uh, Robert, let me start with with you. Uh, So Donald Trump, uh, Joe Biden, who apparently some of these documents actually go back to when he was in the U.S. Senate. He wasn't even in the White House. Can people conclude from this that perhaps this is fairly common or more common than we thought? Do do presidents and vice presidents and I guess even U.S. senators perhaps routinely take home or to their offices classified material and maybe even forget about them? Well, I hope this is not common. Uh, Taking home classified materials and not storing it properly is a problem. It's a very could be a very grave problem, depending on what the material is and how 
it's available for access by third parties who shouldn't have access to it. When I was on the, the Navy staff working as the Senate director, I often had to take materials from uh, classified areas to the Senate to brief a senator on a particular item. And double wrapped in my custody back to the Pentagon, right back into storage when it was done. So this, I hope, is an anomaly, uh, but the more we hear about it, the more concerned I am. Uh, Kevin, I share Robert's I share Robert's concern. I, I would just add, though, from a criminal law perspective, if, in fact, these removals were inadvertent, and apparently Biden is claiming that um, he wasn't even aware of these doc these documents being left behind or moved into new storage areas, it's not likely that they would be the subject of a criminal prosecution, although it's possible. But it's not likely. Well, do, do any of you gentlemen know, you know, we were talking about this earlier today here about, you know, I presume that when a president or a vice president leaves office, I, I kind of don't think that they pack themselves, that they have a huge staff that kind of puts everything in boxes and and takes them to wherever they're going to go. Or or is that not the case? I mean, is there somebody that's supposed to be responsible for making sure that, that let's say, the, the current occupant of the White House, when he leaves, doesn't take the Lincoln bust with him? Every office in the United States government that has secure documents has a security manager. And that security manager is responsible for the movement, storage, protection, uh, and disposition of all national security documents, no matter where they come from, once they come into that person's hands or um, organization. That person would, at the time the individual left office, whether it be a president or a senator, be responsible for going through to make sure that documents are taken to the right place and stored, destroyed, or moved as necessary. And uh, Kevin, Kevin O'Brien, I have a question for you. As a former federal prosecutor, you know, you you have already said that uh, you don't think that there's going to be a criminal case prosecuted in the case of the documents found at uh, President Biden's office and home. But uh, if there were, if 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 you were making the decision on whether to prosecute, uh, how much do you take into account the fact that as far as we're, we have been told, when the first batch of documents were found, uh, calls were immediately made and the National Archives came and retrieved them the next day, that uh, some of these searches that have been carried out were at the uh, behest and at the at the invitation of the White House uh, themselves to uh, go ahead and search this area for the documents, make sure there are uh, no more to be found, find the ones and get them back to where they're supposed to be. You take all that into account when you're deciding if this was inadvertent or, or whether this was on purpose, right? That's correct. In the case of ex-President Trump, it was a much easier call on that question, even though he hasn't been charged yet. Um, there you had a pattern of willfulness and uh, obstruction, which sort of sheds a different light on the situation than what we know so far, and I emphasize so far, about the uh, Biden documents. But I want to go back to, to uh, what we were just talking about, about how there's a, a individual, right, or individuals, I suppose, responsible. So am I to understand correctly that in both Mr. Biden's case and Mr. Trump's case, there should have been a person responsible to make sure that these classified documents were not 
removed to the private residences of either uh, president, but deposited to where they were supposed to be deposited. So how come we haven't heard about these people if they're responsible? I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're part of the investigation that's ongoing right now. And their responsibility would have been to proper disposition of those documents. So if it was a CIA document, it should have gone back to the CIA for disposition, destruction, or refiling. If it was an FBI document, the same thing. DOD, similar process. That individual and that group of individuals should track any national security document, classified document, that comes into the White House into the presidential president's personal residence or travels with the president, because sometimes that happens as well. So that when the use of that document ends, it goes back to where it's supposed to be and is secured for whomever needs it next. All right. Thanks so much. Uh, Robert uh, Sanders here, retired Navy JAG Corps captain, national security lecturer. Also, Kevin O'Brien, white collar trial lawyer and former federal prosecutor. You know, laying off workers is generally never an easy task for companies and those inside who make those decisions. And that's probably why they will turn these decisions over to a computer. A new survey from Captera finds 98% of human resources leaders say they're going to rely at least partly on software programs or algorithms to decide who to lay off if they're forced to cut jobs coming up with a potential recession on the horizon. Tiffany Martinez is a human resources director at Otter Public Relations. Thank you so much for joining us. So uh, these computers are rapidly becoming our computer overlords when it comes to who's going to continue working and who's not. What kind of factors? Actors go into the computer algorithm. Uh, what are the com- what does the computer look at if it's going to make the decision of who to keep and who to let go? I mean, most softwares that are an HR software, when it's looking at things like that, you're going to look for performance issues. So, depending on if your company does performance reviews, are you not meeting the benchmarks that we've set ahead of time? Um, if it's something where it's a position where it's, you know, it's based on you being in the office, like in a call center environment, it may really come down to just statistics of how many calls do you answer? How many calls are you actually resolving? How many things do you have to escalate? Unfortunately, um, especially with giant companies that have, you know, tens of thousands of employees, there really isn't any other way to kind of look and see at least metric wise, who is, you know, your top performers and who may be kind of you know, needing to be educated or coached. Are there certain kinds of jobs that lend themselves to being evaluated by computer uh, systems software and some that are just not? Yeah, um, really, you have to kind of look at the job overall. If you're doing a position where it's a sales-based, where it's you have to make so many calls and close so many sales, that's a very easy metric to measure. And on a human resource side, we can go in that and look at everybody as a whole see who's meeting the metrics and who's not. Um, If it's something like you have clients and you have relationships built, like in the public relations side, there's no way I could use a software as the only determining factor to keep or let someone go because there are so many factors that play in there. um, And you can't, on something like that, you can't take the human out of that. Here's a concern, and and I'm not really being 
humorous or facetious. Uh, this is a real question. Uh, you're a human resources director. What if the uh, human resources computer comes up with an algorithm and says, we don't really need you anymore to do this job because these computers can do it better? Uh, do you see that happening outside of a nightmare? I hope that never happens. Um I think in a human resource side, at least what drives me to want to be in human resources and the passion is that connection with people. And I don't think you can have that come out. Um, yes, you can use metrics. Yes, you can use benchmarks is, and, you know, you can look at things to say, hey, Tiffany, you're not meeting goals. We've asked you to accomplish these items and it's not happening. But if you take me as a human, let's just use me as the resource and take me out. Someone that's having some kind of a family emergency or there's something going on in the background that's affecting their job, you're going to let them go now too. And you have nothing to go back at that to tell you why that's happening. I think that that would, you want to cripple a company, that would be a great way to do it. So so should we all be making nice to our company's computers? No, I think we should be. <laughs> I think we should be having an honest conversation. How can we use software to make life easier for us? Um, a computer is only as smart as the information you put into it, right? So depending on all the information that you're asking it to give you, you take that and you use that. Um, you can't really turn around and just say, okay, this algorithm said X, Y, and Z needs to go. So we get rid of X, Y, and Z. I don't think that'll ever work. I would just like to say for the benefit of any uh, computers that are listening that uh, I have always loved computers more than people. <laughs> and uh, and computers, when you take over, remember, I was always on your side. I'm not. I'm definitely not. <laughs> <laughs> you might be first in line then. That's okay. What, what was that? Though? Was Skynet? Was that what it was <laughs> when called? When Skynet takes over. Let's, let's go. <laughs> Rob, Rob's being a real screen kisser here. <laughs> uh, I mean, I get it, I get it, but no, I don't think I don't think that'll ever be just like those Terminator movies. Humans came out on top, so I'm going to keep riding that out as long as I can. When did this all actually start, though? I mean, we've had computers now with us for quite some time, but is this a fairly recent thing where uh, more and more uh, reliance is put on these algorithms? So I think. At least in my aspect, if I can look at it from an HR side, I do depend on being able to have things to go back and review people and see where they're meeting metrics. I am only one person. Um, our company is just, you know, smaller to medium size. We have about 55, 60 employees. So we don't have, you know, we're not a Google or Amazon. Um, but I wouldn't be able to sit down and actually just look at everybody. I would need something to kind of help identify. Uh, but to just, I can't, I could never fathom taking something that's on a screen in front of me and saying, this is what's going to determine someone's livelihood or lack thereof at that point. Um, Technology is getting better. Softwares are coming up with a lot more options. And I think they're great tools, but I think it's just that it's a tool and you have to keep the human involved in that tool for it to be effective. All right. Thank you so much, uh, Tiffany uh, Martinez, Human Resources Director at Otter Public Relations. By the way, I, I am taking our company's computers to lunch tomorrow, yes. just to let you know. So. Well, you should. Yes. I'm taking them to dinner. Oh, show off. <laughs> <laughs> show off. This has been KNX In-Depth. We will be back and do another one tomorrow.